Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. We are broadcasting from the Ventura River watershed in Southern California on traditional and unceded Chumash territory. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Hi, this is Chad Myers in the BCM office on a crisp autumn October day where the light is changing and the seasons are cooling. We're turning the corner uh, into BartCast 51 and I thought I would share a personal reflection as our thoughts and spirits turn toward the All Saints Tritium October 1st, uh, October 31st through November 2nd. Uh, our thoughts turn to the cloud of witnesses and I wanted to share a reflection in honor of my father who is among the beloved departed. This reminiscence of my dad uh, was first composed 25 years ago at a writing retreat in New Mexico. It was the only writing retreat I've ever done. It was published a few years later in the Other Side magazine, uh, a great Christian publication that five years later itself died an early death. The piece was later still included as an appendix in the book that I wrote with Matthew Colwell entitled Our God is Undocumented Biblical Faith and Immigrant Justice in 2012. So here's, uh, here's this, a story of my father, and I invite you to be thinking about your beloved departed as you listen. They seemed happy when they were here. My friend Felix is staring out at Santa Rosa Island. We're sitting on ocean-smoothed boulders on the point at El Capitan State Beach. Only here do we break the unspoken taboo against talking about our fathers. When we were young, our families used to camp along this magical coastline, where rolling hills of chaparral embrace the kelp-braided waters of the Santa Barbara Channel. From here, you can sometimes see Point Conception, which the indigenous Chumash called Humkak, the Western Gate where departed spirits went to Similikas, the other world. Felix and I have decided that the spirits of our fathers must linger around these parts, sitting around some ghostly campfire, drinking too much as they did, spinning jokes late into the night, the roar of their laughter keeping us awake. I reach for a piece of driftwood and turn it around in my hands, thinking of the only time my father and I ever went camping together by ourselves. It was 1970, 400 miles down this same coast in Baja, California. The previous year, our family trip to San Quintin Bay had been something of a fiasco. We spent most of a day by the side of a dirt road trying to stave off sun and dust and despair. Our VW bus slumped like a beached whale until Dad finally tinkered the engine back to life. 
After that, the rest of the family decided they'd had their fill of off-road adventures in Baha's rugged desert lands, so the next year it was just Dad and me. I close my eyes and see the photograph on my memorial wall at home. His hat is tipped back, his foot propped against a rock. In his hand held out toward me a cup of pulpo en su tinta, octopus in its own ink. We had stopped at La Bufadora on our way south from Ensenada, and he'd pur purchased the pulpo from a sleepy vendor. Dad topped it with slightly sour salsa picante and put out the fire in his mouth with cold beer. He had a mustache at the time, and he looks at ease with his mestizaje. Here he could eat all the tortillas he wanted, belt out off-key strains of La Adelita, oil his rusty Spanish. Like the memories it evokes, the picture seems to orbit around his smile. The maternal side of Dad's family were all Californios, Mexican Californians, a patrimony that both delights and haunts me. It seems to me now that most of the time Dad's raza, his ethnicity, was buried deep under the surface of his assimilated suburban persona, mothballed beneath Republican politics and a corporate wardrobe, exiled like a bastard son. Sobered by the hard catechism of growing up half Chicano and poor, my father had, like California itself, succumbed to an imposed American dream, conforming to its dictates and internalizing its delusions. As kids growing up, we saw only glimpses of Dad's flickering mestizaje. In his love for tamales, for example, or how his car radio was always set to KW, KW, so he could listen to the Dodger ball games in Spanish on his solitary commute home from downtown Los Angeles. When I was young, he used to invite all my friends in for dinner without warning, much to my mother's distress. The famous hospitality of Californios was roundly maligned by ambitious 19th century Yankee colonists. These people are friendly to a fault, wrote Richard Henry Dana contemptuously, and they love nothing so much as a fandango or rodeo. They lack the industry and thrift to tame this place for commerce. However assimilated, Dad's smile would betray the spirit in his bones, and I lived for it. It was the first thing I saw when I stepped off the plane, returning from a dark and difficult high school year abroad in Scandinavia. His was an embrace warmer than the prodigal's father's robe, richer than the fatted calf, promising a hearth in what had become for me an increasingly alienating and alienated world. And Dad's smile is what I recall of the last time I saw him before his hospitalization. The first Gulf War was raging, about which we disagreed profoundly. Just as we felt the argument coming on, he mercifully changed the subject by bringing out an old cache of photographs of his ancestors. We spent the evening poring 
together over them and talked of taking a trip to the Azores to trace the roots of his great abuelo Mendoza. A week later, U.S. flyboys were on a turkey shoot in Iraq, and my dad was dead. At the memorial service, my mom asked me to preach on John 14:2. There was always lots of room in my father's house, I began. And then my grief welled up, and I couldn't go on for a full two minutes. The political winds of imperial conquest and settlement and the global economic currents of boom and bust push and pull people like great tides around the planet. These forces have shaped and reshaped the shorelines of countries and cultures since the first soldiers of fortune landed lost on the beaches of Great Turtle Island. To blame the immigrant for the tides is like blaming a fallen apple for gravity. Who is legal and who is an immigrant, and even who is native, ebbs and flows with these tides. Five generations ago in California, it was Anglo trappers and fortune hunters who were sneaking into Mexican territory as undocumented explorers. But these men were well schooled by already two centuries of westward American expansion schooled on the profitability of squatting and expropriation. In 1846, on the eve of the Mexican-American War, Yankee settlers used cunning planning and positioning to launch an almost bloodless coup that paved the way for the American occupation of California and, a few years later, statehood. California General Mariano Guadalupe Vallejo recognized at the time the rising tide of imperial inevitability that was reaching inexorably from sea to shining sea. Catherine Lee Bates' famous line from her 1893 song America the Beautiful was only echoing Thomas Jefferson's vision of a century earlier. My great-great-grandfather Francisco Mendoza was probably already here when the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo ceded California to the United States in 1848. He had settled in Sonora, so named because Mexican gold miners were congregated and segregated there, pushed to the New World by the tide of European revolutions that year. He escaped from Portugal to Veracruz, Mexico, and then came north by sea. My elderly mother, just before his death, offered to me the embossed leather sea chest that, according to typically unverifiable family tradition had carried Mendoza's belongings. Mendoza married Inés Núñez, who was born in Mexico in 1829. Despite exhaustive genealogical research, we've found no prior family records. Apparently, Mendoza didn't do very well in the gold fields. Census data from the 1850s list him as a gardener. Their second daughter, Maria Rosario, married Luis Guerena, a saloon keeper. She was later active in the native daughters of the Golden West. Their daughter, Inez Belle, was my grandmother. One tantalizing old photo 
shows Ines Beya as a child standing next to an unidentified native woman in front of a tent or teepee. There is no explanation on the back. Economic tides swirled my grandmother from Foothill, Sonora to suburban San Francisco where she and Edward Myers, a German-American tire salesman, endured the hard times of the Depression. As a boy, my dad shared a room with his abuela Maria, who still spoke mostly Spanish. After the early death of her husband, Ines followed my dad down to Los Angeles, where he supported her to live in a small apartment. She knew almost no one and felt deeply out of place, sitting uncomfortably during family gatherings at the elegant home of my mother's parents, who were decidedly managerial class and thoroughly wasp. Gama Ines was a devout Catholic, which seemed bizarre to us five kids, since Dad, though an altar boy in his youth, had long ago bailed from the church. My grandmother seemed depressed and grouchy most of the time, and she never spoke of the past to us. Then again, we kids never asked. Why would I, a suburban adolescent preoccupied with baseball and a neighborhood lawn-mowing franchise, be interested in a fading California legacy? I could kick myself. One of my most treasured possessions is a little leather bolsita I discovered tucked away in my dad's bureau after he died in 1991. In it were two Spanish coins, a two reales copper dated 1852, and a five centam from 1870. When I inquired, my mom related the family story, presumably passed on by Grandma Gama, perhaps after a rare drink. The purse had allegedly been given to her grandmother by the famous California bandido Joaquin Murrieta. According to tradition, a mix of foggy history and heroic legend, Murrieta was a Mexican miner beaten by Yankees in the gold fields, who then raped his wife. Thereafter, Murrieta roamed all over the state, famously robbing gringos and distributing the proceeds to disinherited Californios, a bona fide Golden State Robin Hood. To officials of the newly minted state of California, of course, Murrieta was just a notorious horse thief and terrorist. And in 1853, rangers were recruited to track him down. They claimed to have, have killed him that summer around Pacheco Pass in Northern California as proof they circulated a head pickled in a jar of alcohol so they could collect their bounty. A quarter century later, a certain O.P. Stidger went on record that he'd heard Murrieta's sister say the head was not her brother's. And soon after, numerous sightings of old man Murrieta were reported. The preserved head, meanwhile, was destroyed in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. All this was just enough to leave the door ajar for the legend to live on. After poking around, I discovered that many old California families have similar tales of something they received from Murrieta. I could take this to mean that the tale of my bolsita was mere 19th century fabulation, but I choose not to so dismiss this mysterious yet palpable talisman 
It is, after all, one of the few remnants that the Mendoza clan's paltry material legacy left. I prefer an alternative, if somewhat ethnographic, interpretation. These sorts of family stories exemplify the popular mythologies that preserve suppressed truths of history's underside. After all, Californios were systematically disinherited of land and influence dating the first decades of American rule, and social banditry was a common response among them. My ancestors should have stole land rather than horses, my dad once intoned ruefully and only half in jest when his single real estate investment went sour. But the social history of Mexican California was absent from our public school curricula growing up and even more effectively obfuscated by the 20th century entertainment industry. The Murieta myth was reworked into the popular and romantic Zorro serials of pulp novels and then Disney movies, in which the hero was a decidedly genteel rascal of the landed class and the villains were the Mexican colonial rulers of California. Bass Ackward, of course. Ah, but how I loved watching those shows as a kid. An old photo captures me at age six, costumed as Zorro for Halloween. The Ventura River watershed where we now live and work is still predominantly Mexican, was still predominantly Mexican up until the discovery of oil in the 1870s. And the bandido famoso Murieta allegedly retreated in the local foothills of the Santa Inez Mountains. Today we can see Murieta Peak from our study window and we often hike the nearby Murieta Trail. I enjoy imagining him camped out in one of the surviving and still remote oak groves. But the trail of my ancestors has run cold. My dad was frustrated in his attempts to reconstruct his family story, defeated by lost or destroyed records. He was an only child and everyone from the California side is now long gone. This is how it is in America. Our immigrant identities are invariably fractured, dispersed by the incessant tides of imperial history and its discontents. All the more reason, then, to cling to the fragments that remain, reading them like potsherds, like Gama's bolsita. Remember what has been dismembered. This exhortation lies at the heart of the Church's Eucharistic ritual, repeated with each element for emphasis. It reiterates, reiterates and sums up the deep wisdom of biblical faith, the product of a people all too familiar with distress, displacement, and near disappearance. Whenever you ingest this memory, said Jesus on the eve of his execution, you join yourselves to our historic struggle to make the broken body whole. It was and is both invitation and imperative, equally personal and political. If we Christians refuse to heed it, we are doomed to drift forever on or be drowned by the tides of empire. Refugees all. Dude, let's go ch catch the sunset, says Felix. 
and we begin walking back around El Capitan Point. Ever eaten pulpo en su tinta? I ask him. He stops and looks at me nonplussed. Tastes like shit. I laugh, blinking back tears. And there's my dad, smiling, holding the cup toward me, like a sacrament. But as far as I'm concerned, I add after a moment, it's the body and blood. Thanks for listening, friends. Uh, really encourage you in this uh, season of the saints to reflect on your own family stories or stories of those beloved who have departed and what it means for us personally and politically, particularly in this moment. I wish you a happy All Saints and All Souls Day. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. For more programs and other resources, go to chedmyers.org. Join our community-supported ministry at bcm-net.org backslash donate. Thanks for listening. Thank you.